This is Voices of Hunger in North Carolina, presented by the North Carolina Alliance for Health and Moms Rising. In this episode of Voices of Hunger in North Carolina, we continue talking with Rachel Finley about school meals and child nutrition. Before we got started, I shared a couple of comments on Facebook from parents in North Carolina um, about school meals. And one of those was critical about the fact that the school meal program only uses canned fruits and vegetables. What's your response about that? So I have a multi-tiered response about that, just like everything, right? So at the elementary school level, um, canned vegetables are are needed and necessary. One, we have dentition issues. We have kids that are losing teeth, their jaws may hurt, teeth that are coming in, and just kind of a variety of like tooth problems. There's, are there real issues around there access are. to dental care? Aside from just the regular developmental issues of teeth coming out and teeth coming in, um, we have dental health issues. Yes, we do. We also have a lot of students with special needs um, and a lot of students who have textured versions. And so providing a variety of different types of foods for them to eat, for all students to eat, is really important. I know in most school districts, if they provide a fresh fruit, they're going to provide a canned fruit alternative. And that's just because, one, children like choice, and the more choice you have out there, the more likely they're going to take something. But two, it just sometimes canned... And they do have to take a fruit or vegetable. Yeah, they do have to take... For it to be a reimbursable school meal. Yes, they do have to take a fruit or vegetable. That is required. Um, But like, for instance, my daughter can't have fresh pineapple. Uh, It's just one of the things she breaks out in hives. It has a specific enzyme in it that just acts in her body. Now, this is not necessarily uncommon. I saw it a lot as a child nutrition director. So she loves the fact, so I don't buy canned pineapple for the house. It's just not something I purchased. So she loves pineapple day at school mm-hmm. because it's canned and she can actually eat it. Whereas if it was fresh, she wouldn't be able to eat it. So it's just kind of funny how those things, when you actually talk to the kids, when you actually sit at a table full of children and look at what they're eating, I think most parents would be relatively surprised at, at what a child will and will not pick up from a, from the lunch line. But canned fruit, um, in North Carolina at least, I know that it's being purchased in extra light syrup, which is a super low sugar syrup, or it's in 100% juice. So it just kind of depends on what the item is, depends on what um, what's on the serving line. But for a lot of kids, they just kind of prefer that they don't have to chew it a lot. And then this kind of goes back to the time they have to eat too. So if you or a child and you have about 12 minutes to sit down and eat your lunch, if you pick up that fresh apple, you're going to be gnawing on that apple for about seven minutes. And if you are eating and taking seven minutes to eat your apple, you don't have enough time to eat the rest of the items on the tray. So in essence, canned fruit can be a win because the kids can eat it more quickly. Unfortunately, I have to say that, but they can eat it more quickly. Um, and hopefully there's less waste with it because they're able to consume it. Whereas they might have to throw away the whole apple or a quarter of it or half of it or three quarters of it, depending on how much time they have to eat too. I want to touch on vegetables Mm -hmm. for a second. There are a lot of regulations around vegetables in particular. Can you talk a little bit about the colors, pureeing, things like that, that when parents look at home and they say, I could do school meals for that price, what are they missing about the regulations and what school meals require about vegetables in particular? So vegetables. The Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act was passed in 2010. 
and it was enacted in 2012. And we haven't seen a change to that piece of regulation since that last reauthorization. So what happened in that last reauthorization is previous to that, we just had a grouping of vegetables. You had to serve three quarter cup or one cup of vegetable per day. There were no regulations surrounding what type of vegetable that had to be. And so it kind of fell into that starchy vegetable category. Because in that starchy vegetable category, most of us, if you're a parent, know that your child is gonna eat a potato, your child is going to eat a piece of corn. Those things are just kind of easier to get a kid to eat. The harder things to get kids to eat you know, might be your dark green vegetables, your red-orange vegetables. So dark green would include things like spinach, kale, broccoli. Yes. Green beans. That Green beans is not green considered beans is in that not category. Green. Okay. Yeah. So what happened in 2000, the enaction, the enaction of the new nutrition requirements in 2012 was we now, we're not provided just this lump category of you get to serve X amount of cup of vegetables. Now it's, they have to be broken out into different subgroups. So those subgroups are gonna be a dark green category, which can include leafy greens, which is why you might see spinach or collard greens or turnip greens on the menu. They're gonna include broccoli as well. And those are gonna be in romaine lettuce, which is why we see more salad on the menu now than we had seen previously. And it's not iceberg lettuce. Iceberg lettuce does not count as a green vegetable. Only romaine lettuce counts as a green vegetable. So a lot of the salad that you see on the menu, it might just say salad, but that's a romaine lettuce salad, not an iceberg lettuce salad. So those are the main vegetables you're gonna see kind of in that category. The next category is the red-orange category. I don't know about you, but this is probably the hardest category to get into my children, which is why you're gonna see a lot of carrots on the menu because they're trying to satisfy that red-orange category. So you'll see traditional food items that are popular with students are going to be sweet potatoes. They're going to be tomatoes. Um, there are some cherry tomato cups hanging out on menus to kind of satisfy this requirement, more so at the middle and the high school level. There is, um, yeah, carrots, sweet potatoes, tomatoes, and you may see some red peppers depending on what is in season course North Carolina red peppers don't come into season until July or August and those of us in traditional schools aren't going to to get those on our menus because they're just not seasonal for North Carolina at that time there's a starchy vegetable category and the starchy vegetable category encapsulates your potato products your white potato products and it's going to to hit the corn Lima beans or butter beans as they're called in North Carolina those are the some of the items that you'll see in the starchy uh, vegetable category. There is an also an other category. The other kind of takes on things that don't traditionally fit those other ones. Um, they're not red, they're not green, they're not starchy. Something like cauliflower. If you see cauliflower on the menu, that's going to fall under other. Green beans fall under other. Okra falls under other. So there's quite a few other vegetables as they call them. There's minimum requirements for those vegetables. There's no maximum. So you can serve as many red-orange vegetables as you want to, but you can't serve as, as many starchy as you want to just because the other requirements kind of limit the amount of starchy vegetables you can serve. And then there's another category just called additional. It can be any other vegetable you want it to be, but it cannot be a starchy vegetable. So that's kind of how they cap off those starchy vegetable items. 
So vegetables have evolved in school meals, um, evolved to the better. Actually, when these regulations hit, I had to add starchy vegetables back to my menu. So that was kind of one of those things that no one had really thought about. For those of us that had really kind of pulled back on those starchy vegetables and were trying to introduce more non-starchies, actually had to reintroduce starchies. So there are some things that occur that most people wouldn't think of would be an unintended consequence of the regulations as they saw them as being hugely beneficial, and they are. It's just some of us had done a lot of work in that category and then had to kind of backpedal a bit. So the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act was introduced in 2010 and came into effect in 2012. And the School Nutrition Association from the very beginning said there was not enough funding to cover the increased cost of the meals. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's correct. And has that, has it maintained that? Is the distance between the cost of the meal and how much funding is available gotten bigger over the course of the last seven years or so? So what was also handed down with that regulation was the requirement for individual districts to increase the paid meal price to close that gap. Now, that gap has not been closed. In North Carolina, it can be anywhere between 20 and 30 cents that the school district is actually losing per meal. Um, But... With the, increase in regu- with the increase in the items that had to be served, which resulted in an increase in cost to the districts, the districts were in turn asked to increase their paid meal prices to fill that hole. Now, that hasn't necessarily worked very well just because parents are really unhappy when you're consistently increasing the price of their meals five cents at a time year after year. Um, especially when they may not view school meals as being that particular valuable to their family. So what we ended up seeing with the increase in the meal prices that we had to, we, we were mandated to increase for the paid category, we start to see a decrease in participation in the paid meal price. So the parents that can afford meals are not packing them as much. They don't see them as, as valuable or as beneficial to them because now they have to pay more for them. And because of the onset of the new regulations, we actually saw a decrease in the amount of students participating in the free and reduced price categories as well. That has somewhat corrected itself, and we've seen a bit of a surge in the free and reduced category again, but we continue to see that downward trend in the paid category. So our gap, depending on the district, is getting bigger, just because, especially, so Wake County, I'll use this as my example, Wake County's gap has gotten very large. Only about 35% of students in Wake County schools participate in the school meal program, which is about their free and reduced rate. And they're not even really feeding 100% of their free free reduced reduced students. And then our kids. Yes. Yes, basically. So their participation rate is extremely low. And again, it's because paid students are the majority of the population they're trying to serve. The paid student parent does not feel that it is a valuable um, thing for them to pay for, or they feel that their child is too picky, their child will not find something they want to eat, it's not healthy enough. You know, there's a variety of reasons as why. But when we continue to see a decrease in paid students, so a decrease in, in us sending our kids to school to eat lunch, we're going to see a wider and wider gap as far as how much it costs to make that meal and then how much we actually get for that meal. So let's dig into the numbers a little bit. In Wake County, a school lunch is, what, 235 Oh, it's $2.55 now. $2.55, okay. I just put money in the accounts. <laughs> it's $2.55, um, I think. $2.55. And then the federal reimbursement for a fully paid school meal is 30 something cents? 
For the paid student. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that is yeah, so yeah. about 285. And we know that creating a school meal in North Carolina, not specifically in Wake, which is more expensive than other areas of right. North Carolina, costs about three dollars and forty cents. Yep. So every time my child eats a school meal, she is putting them in the red yep. about sixty cents. That's correct. So how is the child nutrition program gonna make up for that? The child nutrition programs make up for this gap in funding through a la carte foods. So Tell us about a la carte foods. A la carte foods, the necessary evil, and it really depends on how far back you want me to go for a la carte foods. <laughs> so in the 1980s, the Reagan administration slashed funding to a lot of entitlement funds, which is what the child nutrition programs are. So yeah, you might want to buckle up for this one. I'm ready for it. So the Reagan administration cut funding to child nutrition programs by the billions. And a lot of states picked up the difference. So a lot of states said, oh, well, their funding got cut. What we're going to do is now we're going to pay for your employees. Or now we're going to pay for your employee benefits. So we're going to chip in X amount of cents per meal that you serve to make up this funding gap. So North Carolina, a lot of different states decided to help fill the gap. Now, granted, I'm sure it did not completely fill the gap, and schools across the country still started to implement a la carte foods. But in North Carolina specifically, the state did not do anything at all. They didn't chip in any money for employees. They did not take over any of the categories of employee benefits that they pay for. They still do not. They did not provide a per plate reimbursement for breakfast or for lunch as other states provided. They just said, figure it out essentially. So what school nutrition directors were left to do is figure out how to get that funding back into their districts. Because something I've omitted too that is is really important is the local board of education does not provide any funding to the school nutrition program. So the federal the federal monies that are a reimbursement for meals already served pass through the Department of Public Instruction, which then pass to the local district and then get passed to the child nutrition department. And nobody takes any money out of the till at that point. It's just a pass-through. So the locals don't pitch in any cash when this happens. The state doesn't pitch in any cash. The federal has slashed it, and the, the directors are left with the staff in place and children walking through their doors that they have to feed no matter what happens doesn't matter how much less money they're getting. That hungry child's still coming through the door. And they do, in fact, have to feed them. And they have to feed them. The um, law there is, is there. There's state There's state law. on that. Yes, there's state mandate. National school lunch program is required for every school district in North Carolina. So if a kid comes through your door, you have to feed that child. So these kids are coming through. They're trying to fill the gap. So they fill the gap with what we call a la carte foods. Now, back in the 80s and 90s, up until about 2005, when North Carolina passed its first subset of regulations on that, it could have been anything they wanted. That's when you started to see Little Debbie Cakes. I don't know if you saw grandma's, whoever's cookies when you were in school, but we could go and buy a two-pack, a four-pack, or whatever we wanted of those grandma, whatever, chocolate and chip kids cookies. And could and do for, did, for example, buy, like, two things of French fries. Oh, that yeah. that be the meal. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were... They it were was a wild west of so, Sodas, you could go in and buy. I had a friend that drank Dr. Pepper, and she would get Dr. Pepper every single day. That's when we saw a lot of those soda machines being brought into schools. Everyone's trying to generate some cash. Mm-hmm. We have a, a deficit. And selling a la carte foods was wildly 
what, what was just a economic windfall for child nutrition programs in North Carolina. So you went from having a deficit to now all these districts having a surplus of funds, the school nutrition programs having a surplus of funds. And so the state reacted to that surplus of funds. So if you had a, a high fund balance, so anything over three months of your operating costs, which is the fund balance. So if you could, if you could have no money coming in and, and, and still operate for three solid months, you had exceeded what they wanted you to have in your fund balance. So then things like direct costs, indirect costs came in, where school districts now were allowed to charge child nutrition programs for essentially rent. They now, and, it, and that practice still exists today, so they can charge based on a percentage of costs that the district incurs. They can charge the child nutrition program for lights, for the water bill, for just payroll, administrative overhead, all those things. So we saw a few different things happen. Again, in the 80s, we saw a decrease in funds. We saw child nutrition programs in North Carolina react, now have an increase in funds, have too much of it available, and then we have the school districts coming and taking some of that away. Okay. So now we're going to head into about 2005. 2005 is where North Carolina said, wait, hold the phone. These a la carte sales are just out of control. What you're serving is not healthy for students. We are going to change that. So then you started to see requirements being put on the elementary and the middle school students. So we still had the high school students that we could make some money off of, but we could no longer make money, or a lot of it, as much as we needed to, off the elementary and the middle school students. And elementary school is where most children participate in school meals, right. where most of the participants participate. Right. Um, that trickles down as you go into middle and high school. Correct. The stigma starts to be applied, right. So... We have less gener money being able to generate at the elementary and the middle school level. We have money that can still be generated at the high school level. So then we saw a formulation change of all the a la carte items. That's when things had to start going to being baked chips or when things had to go to being low-fat ice cream. That's when you kind of start to see that turn. Cookies cannot be a free-for-all. They now are these low-fat, low whole grain hockey pucks that are just awful that nobody buys. Um, so those are kind of what ended up happening for that. So that was 2005. North Carolina was one of, uh, one of the first states to kind of enact some type of regulation surrounding a la carte foods. And then the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act hits. Again, that was a 2010 law that was enacted in 2012. And within that law was what is called Smart Snacks. And Smart Snacks was a K-12... Um, regulatory, what can be provided as a la carte food and what cannot be provided as a la carte food. And this is when the perfect storm in North Carolina hits. So we had an abundance of funds leading up to 2005. We have now school districts that are taking funds or, or charging for the child nutrition programs to be in the buildings. We've seen a decrease in funds now because the a la carte program is not as robust as it was. And then 2012, we see a further hit in a la carte funds and a requirement that some food items can be served, some food items can't, some food items can be served two days after they're served on the... I mean, it's just a whole subset of regulations that are really confusing and really restrictive. While they're good regulations, because we get no state funding, we ended up watching more and more school districts, child nutrition programs, be in the red. So more and more losing money considerably. 
to the point I think now 43 of our 115 districts are operating at a deficit currently in North Carolina. And that's only going to get worse. Can you tell me, is it distributed in any pattern? Is it lower income school um, districts? Is it our rural school districts? Is there any pattern to it? Is it just... It's, it, there's, a, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. Is the Board of Education still charging that program that's barely operational, barely making you know, ends meet? Are they still charging them indirect costs or are they not? So it doesn't matter. That program could have $30,000 in the bank and expend a million dollars in a month and they could charge indirect costs to just take all the fund balance away from that particular piece of the school district. So it's 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 very well the the deficits that these school districts are running on uh in the child nutrition programs are are just distributed. And you haven't used the term, but I want to make sure we use it today so that people know it, but enterprise system. Yes. We consider our child nutrition programs to be enterprise systems within our school system. Yes. Yes. So an enterprise is a business operating as a governmental agency. Um, and that's what child nutrition programs do. Um, most people think, when they think about a government organization, they think about this organization gets an appropriation of funds. So they get a big pot of funds at the beginning of the year, and then they kind of utilize those funds throughout the year. For the child nutrition program, they, have, they serve your child. They serve our kids. They're serving them in April. But the child nutrition program will not get money back from the federal government until about mid-May. So they're putting cash in front of what they think is going to happen. So they're serving these kids knowing that they're going to get reimbursed. And that's why those, when we had the partial government shutdown, it didn't necessarily affect child nutrition programs. But when I was on maternity leave in 2013 during the two-week government shutdown, that did affect them. It gets really, really sticky because I'm having to put cash out. I am required by law to feed these children no matter what I have in stock. And I don't know if I'm going to get that cash back the next month because it kind of depends on how the government's operating. I mean, I'm never, if it's shut down, I'm not guaranteed to get that cash back. And then if I'm one of those, if I'm one of those child nutrition programs that's teetering on the edge and maybe I only have a few thousand dollars in the bank, what do I do when my when payroll hits or what do I do when my vendors are asking me for money or it's very much a business. And I I think that that's left out of the conversation a lot of times is I was running a $14.7 million business with 300 employees and 40 kitchens. And it, it's the type of thing that keeps you up at night for sure. That would do it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So tell me about some of the policy solutions that you could see or would love to see um, or you think would help um, child nutrition and hunger in North Carolina. I would love to see the state recognize the educational value of a school meal. And like you had mentioned earlier, everyone knows that feeding kids is important when it's time for testing. Because all the school districts are screaming that they want free breakfast. You have to provide my children with, you have to provide all the students with breakfast. Breakfast is important. Breakfast is important. Breakfast is important. Breakfast is only important on testing days to the administrators, but it's always important to those of us that either feed children or believe in feeding children as much as we can or hunger relief. So I'd love to see the state provide some level of funding 
for the school meal programs to help fill the gap that the federal program is not. And it's, it is actually written in federal regulation for the states to provide some level of funding. And our, our state just hasn't taken up that piece of legislation and, and adopted it at all. Other things... No, we have provided a minimal amount of funding. Um, The state, for example, does provide a little bit of funding, so a reduced-price breakfast right now is free. Yes. Um, It is free. But that's about... Yeah. So in order for states to get a type of federal funding, they have to match that funding. So that's required. So North Carolina matches that funding at $7.1 million. That is the reason why we get the 30 cents for breakfast. We have the seventh largest school meal program Yes. in the country, um, which means we're feeding a lot of kids. Yes. So the state provides a match of $7 million Yes. to a federal give of mm-hmm. $400 million. Correct. And with that money, about how many school meals do we serve a day? We serve about 1.1 million school meals a day. But that could mean the same student could participate in breakfast and lunch. Of course. But about 1.1 million. There's 180 days in the school year? Yes. 180 days in a school year. I'm doing the math. You're doing the math really fast. And there's a lot of zeros involved. It's so many zeros. So that would be... What you come up with? So if child nutrition programs in North Carolina serve about 1.1 million meals a day, breakfast and lunch could be the same child eating twice, over 180 school days in a year then they're serving 198 million meals a year. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it on a state investment of $7.1 million. Yes. Um, and a required state investment. This is not an optional state investment. Don't miss the third and final episode of our series on school meals with Rachel Finley. Thank you for listening to Voices of Hunger in North Carolina, presented by the North Carolina Alliance for Health and Moms Rising.